And so much of the Little Prince, isn't it, is, is to do with his take on the world, which someone like him and a child would understand. He respects children enormously. He thinks quite a lot of us adults have gone wrong. He's probably right about that. Welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, can you guess the voice you just heard? Can you? Can you? It's Michael Mapurgo, uh, the man, the writer, the legend. He is one of the most prolific uh, children's authors in Britain. He wrote War Horse, among a whole plethora of other children's classics. Uh, uh, but what you might not know about Michael Mapurgo is he is also a very skilled translator. Michael has put his master storyteller skills into translating a very exciting French classic fable, The Little Prince. It's the story of the most innocent and beautiful uh, young boy who appears to a pilot stranded in the desert. And he makes an extraordinary request that I won't spoil the surprise of, but trust me when I say it has captured uh, the hearts and minds of lots of readers across the ages in France. We had an extraordinary um, experience listening to Michael Mapergo in conversation, actually, with his long-term French editor, Christine Baker. As they discuss his process translating The Little Prince, the nuances and beautiful differences between French uh, and British culture, and also the way that French people and British people treat um, children and children's literature, what's left in, what's put out. And because of the limits of geography and time and physics, we couldn't get you all in that room, but we can bring you that conversation uh, right now in this podcast. So you're going to be listening to Michael Mapergo in conversation with Christine Baker, and they're going to be talking about The Little Prince. Enjoy. So it was that I lived much of my life on my own and almost no one to speak to. That is, until six years ago, when I was forced to crash-land my plane in the Sahara Desert. Something had gone wrong with my engine. I had no mechanic with me and no passengers. I was alone. Somehow I had to find some way of repairing my engine. It was a question of life or death. I had only enough water left for eight days. That first night, I lay down to sleep on the desert sand, knowing I was thousands of miles from the nearest living person. I was even more alone than a shipwrecked sailor lying on a raft in the middle of the wide, wide ocean. Imagine my surprise then when I was woken at dawn by a strange small voice. Excuse me, the voice said, but I was wondering if you could draw me a sheep, please. <laughs> what? A sheep? I want you to draw me a sheep. I leapt to my feet as if I had been struck by lightning. I rubbed my eyes to be quite sure they were not deceiving me. No, I had seen what I had seen. An extraordinary-looking little fellow was standing there scrutinising me intently. This is the best portrait I did of him a while later. But my drawing, it has to be said, is not nearly as good or as beautiful as he was in real life. That's not my fault, though. If you remember, when I was six, I had been rather put off following my intended career as a painter by discouraging grown-ups. After that sad experience, I had never really learned to draw anything else except boa constrictors, the insides and outsides of boa constrictors. <laughs> so anyway, I stood there, looking at this amazing and incongruous apparition, wide-eyed with wonder, as you can imagine. You must not forget that I was thousands of miles from any human habitation, and yet this little fellow 
did not seem lost at all. He wasn't dying of exhaustion or hunger or thirst, and he did not look frightened in the least. He just did not look like a lost child in the middle of the desert, a thousand miles from anywhere. What on earth are you doing here? I asked him, when at last I got over my surprise and found my voice. But he simply repeated his strange request, very softly, very sweetly, and in complete seriousness. Excuse me, but I was wondering if you could draw me a sheet, please. This whole situation, what he was asking me, was so utterly absurd that somehow I could not say no. I knew that it was equally absurd, a thousand miles from anywhere and anyone, and in serious danger of dying out there in the desert, to be taking a piece of paper and a pen out of my pocket. I told this little fellow rather impatiently, I fear, that my studies had included geography, history, mathematics and grammar, but not drawing, and that I really was not much good at drawing. That does not matter, he said. Don't worry about that, just draw me a sheep. <laughs> so because I had never drawn a sheep, I did instead one of the only two drawings I knew I could do, one of my boa constrictor drawings, one with a swallowed elephant inside. I was amazed at his reaction. No, no, he cried. I didn't want a drawing of an elephant inside a boa constrictor. A boa constrictor is very dangerous, and as for an elephant, it is huge and would always get in the way. At home, where I come from, everything is small. I need a sheep. Draw me a sheep. So I drew him a sheep. He took one look at it, then he said, No, that's no good at all. It already looks rather poorly to me. Do me another. So I did. My young friend smiled, but rather patronisingly, I thought. I'm afraid I have to tell you that this is not a sheep. It is a ram. It has horns. I did the drawing again, but he rejected it just as he had before. That one is too old. I want a sheep who will live for a long time. By now I had had enough of all this. I had no more time to waste. My engine needed stripping down. I had to get on with it. So very quickly I sketched this drawing and showed it to him. There you are, I told him. This is his box. The sheep you want is inside it. <laughs> I was, of course, expecting another rejection. So you can imagine my surprise when I saw that his eyes were bright with enthusiasm. That's just what I wanted. Do you think a sheep like this will need a lot of grass? Why do you ask? Because as I told you, where I live everything is rather small and there's not much room to grow a lot of grass. It'll be fine, I told the little fellow. I have drawn you a tiny, tiny little sheep. He leant forward and looked closely at the drawing now. Not so tiny as all that, he said. Would you believe it? The sheep. He's fallen asleep. And that was how I first got to know the little prince. I mean, what, what writing, and what a translation. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. Good evening. I'm going to start the evening. My name's um, Morpurgo, Michael Morpurgo. I'm a, a writer. I've been a writer of children's books for far too long. Um, <laughs> but here this evening, we're here to set a book going, which, of course, has been going for years and years and years in a great country called France. And the wonderful thing about having Christine Baker here on my left is that she uh, is uh, the editor at Gallimard, in uh, Paris and London, 
who is hugely responsible for taking the best of uh, British children's books to France and translating them. And so, of course, she has many of my books on her <laughs> list. Um, but she's done something very remarkable, and it's this. If you go to France and you talk to children, by and large they are just as likely to have read Philip Pullman and J.K. Rowling and David Armand and other people as children in this country. Cross that over the other way and you would find it extraordinarily difficult to find French writers who have been translated into English so that British children could read something about, if you like, a French way of being and a French take on life. It's one of the, the great shames we have in this country, and we sort of know where that has led, but I won't go there, because otherwise I won't get off. <laughs> um, what I want to say, really, is that Christine has really kindly come along here this evening, um, and she'll talk a lot about uh, Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince, um, which I had the honour of translating. We'll talk about that for, I don't know, quarter an hour, 20 minutes. And then we might get into other books that um, I've written about France. This is going to be quite a French evening, so if you don't like French wine or France, you can leave now. <laughs> and then after we've done that, we'll throw it open to questions. Is that, is that okay? Yes. yes. I don't know what you've paid, but that's the money worth. <laughs> um, so I will just hand over to Christine now to introduce the Petit Prince and to start quizzing me. And you'll notice that I've got some red wine because I'm on the receiving end of interrogation. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. So, this is very new to me. Thank you for this incredible privilege to be, to be here, uh, which you, <laughs> I couldn't resist uh, this nice way of, of seeing you. I remember my excitement when you said, oh, I have a little project, which is to translate The Little Prince, of touching the sacred book. It is an iconic book. It's a little bit like the Bible, I think. For us in France, you don't. I was telling you before that I haven't actively read it for a very long time, and I was amazed at how much I remembered, because so many of these sentences and situations have gone into common language, and they are like proverbs or rhymes or that are circulated with your blood. Uh, I was amused in your intro that you said this is a book like no, like nothing else. It's strange. It's French. What, what, uh, what did you mean? <laughs> what did you mean? Um, one of the questions, I don't know if it's, uh, it, it bears a relation with it, and that's still a debate in France where 14 million people have bought the book, so many more have read it. It's been uh, it, 400 million copies have been, been sold in the world. How many? 400. I hate writers who <laughs> do that. Isn't that awful? All those copies. And the. The number of the, the most extraordinary record, if we go into this um, kind of statistics and Guinness Book of Record type of, is the number of, of languages and dialects it, it is. How many languages? Which is 400. Now? 400 languages? Yes. And, I mean, the, the list is, it's, it's like a conservatory of languages that you didn't know existed. I mean, there is no language, probably, that the little prince is not written in. But anyway, in France, it's um, one of the questions apart from the fact that you, you know it, even if you don't think you know it, is, is it a children's book or not? And himself, Saint-Exupéry, is always having this discussion between the grown-ups, whom yes. he 
drinks that indulgent in the children, and he dedicated the book to his best friend. But There's a very beautiful... Can I read them, the yeah, introduction? It is, it is, there's a very yeah. beautiful introduction. Introduction is always very difficult to write. I won't read you mine, that's boring, but there's a very nice oh, one that he yeah. wrote. Um, he wrote to Léon Werth, or Werth, you would say. Léon Werth. And it says this. Um, I want to apologise to all you children for having dedicated this book to a grown-up. I have a proper reason. This grown-up is my best friend in the whole world. And there's a second reason also. This grown-up understands everything, even books for children. And there's a, even a third reason. This grown-up lives in France, where he is hungry and cold. He really does need cheering up. But if all these reasons are not good enough, and they are not, then I should like to dedicate this book to the child that this grown-up once was. All grown-ups were once children. But very few of them seem to remember that. <laughs> That's why I am changing my dedication to Léon Verth when he was a little boy. <laughs> and so much of the Little Prince, isn't it, is, is to do with his take on the world, which someone like him and a child would understand. He respects children enormously. He thinks quite a lot of us adults have gone wrong. Probably right about that, but there we are. He was quite prophetic. It's very, very modern. He um, he has written many other books. This was almost that was a he wrote a little play in the state of relative depression in New York, isolated, in love with a woman that maybe the rose is a metaphor of who was treating the relationship quite difficult, and not able to serve his country because as a as a wonderful pioneer pilot that he had been, but he had been wounded, so he wasn't really meant to fly. And so there was a lot. So he wrote this novella very, very much from the depth of his heart, and, but, and this is why it was published in the United States first, and only in France, only after his death, and after, um, and in France. One reads his book in France a lot as an adolescent, because it's full of precepts and philosophy and study, very, very modern as well, lot. very, yeah. very modern. For yeah. instance, you know, his take on nowadays when it's poetical and when it's loved by children and when it's important, grown-ups don't believe it. But if you put a figure on it, if you can sell or buy it, mm. then, then grown-ups begin to understand. A lot of the little prince suddenly, I realised, was a lot more prophetic yes, than yes. I realised as a child. It's about how we are now as well, hugely. No, it's, um, it's one of those books I learnt a lot from. When you translate a book, that's the other thing which has been... Really, I never translated a book before, maybe that showed. But um, it is the only language that I have any close knowledge of, French. And I thought I could do it relatively easily. And I discovered very, very quickly that I couldn't. And this was mostly because of his prose. It's at the same time immensely complicated and very simple. And I don't quite know how to explain that. But it's a poem. And therefore, you, in a way, you have to translate it like a poem. You have to catch the spirit of it. And I thought, well, it's a matter of understanding the words and the sentences, but it's about understanding the writer behind the words and the sentences. And I know no better way, I've just discovered this really, doing this, of discovering who a writer was than translating his books, because you really do get under the skin of them. I feel as, as if I know this man very, very well, um, that I've flown with him in his plane. Um, for thousands and thousands of miles. I even thought at one point I was with him on um, the day he died. As some of you may know, he disappeared 
over the sea. Um, and uh, I had thought until recently that uh, nothing was ever found of him. But apparently they found a bracelet, his, didn't they? Yes, with his identification bracelet. Off the coast of, was it Marseille or somewhere like Corsica, that? Corsica, right. Corsica. Mm -hmm. um, so. But the mystery is. The mystery is there, yeah, absolutely. And, and a German officer thought he had shot him down and w went forward recently, but that has been disputed as well, although the, and, and felt terrible about it. But we, one doesn't know. And, but, um, wh what, how did you feel about translating all these iconic passages like Apprivoiser le renard? I mean, there's so many, as you say, it's, it's sheer poetry. and. It's very, very bouleversant, poignant. I mean, you yeah. are, one is often close to tears reading it. Very much so. I mean, I think as you call them iconic. The interesting thing about almost anyone in England who's read it is that it's not iconic. It's, 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 a, mm. it's not a book that is... I mean, I've met, mentioned this introduction. It's very strange mm. that in France it's the book everyone knows. That's it. It must be the most popular book in France, I know, by a long, long way, going back some time. In this country, it's read by comparatively few people. But now it will... Now it's going to be read by everyone. Um, but it's, um, what's really interesting about it is that there is this, this notion, really, that, that it, there's a tone about it which English people are not familiar with, particularly when it comes to books for young people. And that's very strange because it's actually a really good adventure, first of all. It really is a good adventure. But it is strange. And I have to say, and I know Christine would like me saying it, it is French. And the French take on stories is significantly different. They're really, really mm. good at big stories. Think of, think of Jules Verne and all these people. They're fantastic at big, particularly voyage stories. They're really good. However, there is running through French stories, lots and lots of them, um, an intellectual content, which maybe we don't necessarily think children are going to understand, so that would come later. We consider that what, the kind of thing you might write in an adult novel. This book has both. It's neither a book for children, nor a book for adults, it's a book for people. And that's what makes it remarkable. And uh, so I want people your age to read it. Have you read it already? I'm on chapter three. Of my, <laughs> of my translation. Yeah. Well, that's not oh. fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you haven't read it before. Uh, there's a person behind you. I know I shouldn't point. Have you read it? You watched the what? <laughs> no, but this is the thing. The movies have been good. There's been a good opera. People have done lots and lots with it. But the text seems to be something that's been out of our reach. It needs interpreting before we can read it until now. What do you think of it so far? Tell me. I'm on chapter three as well. <laughs> and, and what do you give it out of ten? Take care. <laughs> Did you note the fear, the fear in the voice? <laughs> I would too, yeah. And I've read it all. So, and yes, reading it all was for me was full of questions because I know what's coming and what's uh, you know how is he going to, to talk about on tout ce qui est important est invisible pour les yeux. How the well maybe I shouldn't disclose the end, but it is very sad at the end. But it's, you, do, you do that very very beautifully the, the way. The it's difficult to do, and there were certainly. I'm sure you've overcome my eyes and my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. more than once. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of melancholy and sadness in this book, yeah. one has to say. But a lot of learning, that's what you sum up very well in your introduction, one, one doesn't see people and life and death and questions and friendship. It's a book about friendship as well. It's huge, that's yeah. very, very important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, it is on earth to find friends. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Would you like to listen to the fox? Um, we, we got a, a little episode about the fox, which... It's, that's uh, a sort of gem that really everyone, I feel, in France that thinks and talks about friendship or attachment or having a special person in one's life, it refers back to what the fox taught the little prince. Absolutely. He's the first person that the little prince meets before he meets the pilot. Yeah. He gets a lesson from the fox. Yeah, yeah. Well, the little prince does three things. He asks questions all the time, and he will never give up. In, and he never answers. No, you have to. You have to put up with it. There's yeah. a lot of clues, and yeah. or he laughs with his peal of, of laughter, and sometimes he cries as well. But to to return to with to about to talk about children's books more generally and across the channel, mm. as you say, the little prince is unique. And it's, it's wonderful when something unique becomes so universal and so well-loved. And it's neither a children's book nor a book for adults, but both. And paradoxically, the reason why I, was, I fell so much in love with British children's literature and tried to get it published in, so much in France is because I felt British authors were naturally more on the same wavelength with children, were neither patronizing nor trying to... Saint-Exupé does it uniquely well to, to be a philosopher and to... But it, it is a bit of a trend. And when I arrived in this country and I began to read children's books, I was working in children's bookshop, which is why I came here, I was amazed. It was completely new to me. I mean, I already Peter Pan and, you know, the classics have done this, yeah. but to discover. And therefore, I, I think um, this attitude towards children is, you know, very much underneath the way you write and the way we, we wrote in France for children, which was not very much at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't... It's very difficult because children's books in this country, when you, when you write them, you are... You do have children very much in your head. Mm. And you have your, your own childhood in your head. I mean, I, when I, every book I write, I, I'm using the... The greatest resource I use is my memory, where I've been, where I've come from. So, for instance, to give you some idea, I'm now going to look at some, some children again and just test them to see if they're any good <laughs> um, Some years ago, to give you an idea, I wrote a book called The Butterfly Lion. Have you read this book? No. I'm picking on you all evening. <laughs> and I could tell by the look on your face, please don't ask me. <laughs> anyway, I wrote The Butterfly Lion, and it, and it is a, sort of an example, really, of how you delve back into yourself to find the child inside you when you're telling a story. And this is really a story about... Um, me running away from school. I, went, I, went to, I was sent away to a school when I was very young, a boarding school, like Hogwarts, <laughs> only real. <laughs> I was the one who should have written that book. I know more about those schools than she <laughs> does. <this> girl. <laughs> anyway, I went to this school in Sussex somewhere in the Downs. It should have been wonderful, and it mostly certainly wasn't wonderful. And I tried to run away when I was seven. I tried to run home. But the problem was I lived, I was in Sussex, and I lived in Essex, on the Essex coast, which is quite a way to go. And I remember terribly well, and it's in the book, that, that how I ran away. I, I, had, I had a strategy. And the strategy was to run away um, when I, so I could get as far away from school as possible before anyone could start looking. So I did something really, really intelligent. I put up my hand in the middle of lunch, and lunch then, the master sat at the end of the tables. It was all very sort of Hogwarts. And I put out my hand, and I said, please, sir, uh, can I go to the lavatory? We called it lavatory in those days. And bizarrely, bizarrely, this is absolutely true, um, 
you had to declare, this is true, I'm not making this up, you had to declare before you went why you were going to the moon. <laughs> so you would say, please, sir, can I go to the laboratory? It meant, can I have a wee-wee? But you couldn't say wee-wee because it wasn't that sort of school. Please, sir, can I go to the laboratory? That meant they could expect you to be back quite quickly. If you wished to do the other, you would say, this is true, <laughs> please, sir, can I go down successful? <laughs> I mean, honest to God, this one. Please, can I go down successful? Which meant you could be gone for two, at least two or three minutes. So I put up my hand and said, please, sir, can I go down successful? Yes, more pogo. No Christian names. Off you go. So I, I went. But I didn't go down either successful or not. I went out of the dining room, turned right, ran out of the door into the pouring rain and set off for Essex which was approximately 115 miles away. <laughs> and I'm seven years old, and it's raining, and I just want to go home. And the true story is I went down to the end of the drive, turned left, and so... <laughs> and I knew if I was caught, I was going to get beaten, because that's what happened those days. You got the cane for doing naughty things like running away. So I ran, 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 and suddenly I heard this car behind me. And I turned around, and it was a little black car. And inside I saw there was a little old lady... And she did something quite extraordinary, which you young ones won't know. She wound down the window. <laughs> and, and she looked out and she said, um, You all right, dear? So I said, No, no, I'm not. And she knew immediately. She said, You've run away, haven't you? You've run away from that school. Don't blame you. Don't blame you. Get in the car, which you know, never, 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 never do. But I did because it was a little old lady and she had a dog in the back, so I got in the car. She took me home. To her warm house, she took off my wet jacket and hung it up. She told me to put my feet in the oven to get them warm. She gave me a sticky bun and a cup of tea, and then she said to me, What are we going to do with you, dear? What are we going to do? I tell you what, I'll ring up the headmaster. No! <laughs> so I knew what would happen. So I ring your mum and dad. No, that would have been just as bad. So in, I did, fine, fine, fine. she said, I'll take you back. I'll take you back. I'll drive you. Not to the gate so they can see you coming in. I'll drive you to the woods just out of school and you can run in and maybe they won't even know you've gone. So she did that. And this lady, it's name I haven't saved my life. So that little thing stays in your head and it becomes part of a story all those years later. And I think that's what it is. You feel you must put yourself somehow into, the, into these stories. Um, so I think that's what it is, really. We, I think we're very connected to our childhoods in this country, mm. particularly if people have tried to take our childhood away from us. much for listening to the vintage podcast the little prince uh, is a beautiful new edition for christmas so if it's something you want to pick up for a friend or yourself very important to buy books for yourself at christmas um do check it out thank you so much for listening to the vintage podcast do tweet us at vintage books if you would like to talk more about the little prince or any of the other books we talk about on the podcast we'd love to chat to you there um do leave us a review if you fancy and until next time 